Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about technology, instructional design, and the learning sciences. In this episode, Clara and I will talk about social-emotional learning in this time of remote teaching. But before we start, let me introduce the guests. Why don't we start with you, Devin? My name is Devin Thornburg. I am on the faculty at Adelphi. My background is in social-emotional learning work in schools as it relates to diverse populations and school reform, and I'm very glad to be here. My name is Lisa Minicozzi. I'm also a faculty member at Adelphi University, and I am split between school leadership. I'm a former elementary school principal, and I have a specialization in early childhood education. Hi, I'm Jonas Sapuntis. I'm the director of the school psych program at Adelphi. Um, I'm both a school and a clinical psychologist, and also with a specialization of working with kids, and also with kids with disabilities. Uh, I wanted to say first thank you, everyone, for being here. Last episode, we invited a parent a teacher and a student, this idea of the need of social-emotional learning or something related to social-emotional learning kept coming up because it has been such a stressful time. So could one of you tell us what social-emotional learning means? I think it's really important that we start by saying that it seems that this is a bit of a fad now and, and trending in schools today, but social-emotional learning uh, through the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. We use the acronym CASEL. It's been around for over two decades. So those of us who are connected to working with young children, especially myself in early childhood, we've always taken a look at the child uh, through a holistic lens. So socio-emotional learning is embedded practice in early childhood education. But according to CASEL, it's really, you know, helping children and adults to better define and understand uh, their emotions, manage their emotions, set goals, show empathy for others, establish positive relationships, and really make better decisions. Um, I would say thank you for having us on, but I, I would say that in the experience of going through the process of developing social and emotional learning in schools, that that definition that Cassell has doesn't capture everything that's social emotional learning. There's some other areas that deal with things like social capital, um, that uh, ac academic self-efficacy that aren't really made part of this mix in a way that should be. And the other thing that we have to be careful about because of the focus today is to see it not as a thing, to see it as more as a um, an understanding that unfolds, um, paying attention to that. I feel, I can even say that Social and emotional learning was always part of schools. In fact, preschool, kindergarten, etc., it's about social and emotional learning. And, and I, we learn a lot by being in school and how we relate. The difference with this curriculum, in my view, I don't know much about the curriculum per se, is how it exactly developed, but it seems to me that it coincides with a growing awareness that, you know, there are, until about 15, 20 years ago, there's been an attention to academics, so to speak. 
but there are kids who are falling behind or through the crack. They may do well academically, but they are not relating very well. And of course, there is this growing awareness and sensitivity of kids being feeling marginalized, being criticized, being attacked, being left out, or not relating very well. So to me, my understanding is that the social and emotional curriculum, or emphasis on social and emotional perspective, comes with this increasing awareness that we we need to be, be more methodical in, in, in teaching the basics, basically, which is how we relate and how we are with each other and how we, we come to recognize the emotions of other people and how important that is for a person's development and capacity to form relationships and you know, feel successful and accepted in life. I know myself as both a parent and a teacher, I couldn't agree more with your comments. And I'm so worried now when we think about what chronic stress does to young people. I know it obviously has a negative effect on the sympathetic nervous system, but when we do go back to a more normalized school experience, how should we approach that? That's a loaded question. Sorry. (laughs) And I'm I'm not trying to dodge it by saying that. I'm very mindful of some of speaking in generalities. I think everybody's shaken by that and every kid and every parent. And I think for the first time in a situation like that, we are all kind of unsure as to what will happen and we have different levels of worry. I think the the stressor for the child, for kids, I think, have a lot to do with how their parents are able to negotiate what's happening to them and how supported the parents themselves feel. Um, so my my understanding in, in, in talking to some parents and working via Zoom with some kids and meeting with a parent, I've, I've come to see how important the capacity to, main, to maintain a structure at home is. Um, now, by structure, I don't mean a rigid structure, but a clear structure with time for homework, time for play, time for dinner, time for free time. And it is a structure that it, it allows the kids to feel a little bit, there is some sameness and some order, and also that the parents are able to act and engage uh, instead of just leaving them to be in the computers and not knowing what to do. I don't know if you have heard this yourselves, but I'm struck by the fact that I've had several kids who haven't had very positive experiences in schools and who have said, I don't like school, say nowadays that I miss school. What do they miss exactly? I think they miss the sense of normalcy. They miss the sense of structure. They miss the sense of a life going on as a routine, basically, where we don't appreciate it that much and complain a lot about, but nevertheless, it is a life that was structured with many opportunities. They miss that semblance, that, that normalcy. And I feel that parents who are able to create some sense, some normalcy at home through structure, through times that are devoted to kids, that, that can go a long way in lessening the stressor, the stressors the kids would feel. Um, if that doesn't happen, I, I don't know how kids would be coping after this crisis. And I'm saying that, if I may add one more thing, I see about five or six kids via Zoom. Well, three of them are continue, I, I continue to see them. The other two, three, I don't, or it's more sporadic. And there is a difference. The three kids that I still see and the parents are structured, organized, very present, very able to attend and have modified their own schedule to make sure they offer enough time to the kids, both for learning, but also for playtime and social time afterward. In other words, they've scaled down their work. And the other three kids, 
they're kind of being left more alone. And therefore, there is a tendency to escape to the tablet, to computers, to be more alone and have a lot of their time. It's not surprising then that in this second case, one of the kids has started stuttering again. You know, he had stopped stuttering at the age of four with speech with uh, speech therapists, with the work of a speech therapist. And now at the age of eight, nine, started stuttering again, even though nothing overtly traumatic has happened to him, other than being in a home, spending a lot of time by himself with not much else to do other than playing with video games and watching computer TV, etc. I just came from a, a meeting with a group of very skilled and experienced directors of after-school programs in New York City, where this was the main topic. That is, how do you reach kids in after-school settings as much as school settings in a home environment where uh, the lack of structure is there? And part of the struggle is that they see uh, the kids, whether they be younger or older, uh, but they don't see the parents in a way to, to be able to do outreach with them. They're not in that role. So part of the struggle has been, and I think this is my main message throughout whatever we talk about, that SEL needs to be systemic. It's not a specific kind of uh, uh, interaction or relationship, although that certainly contributes to it. But the, the personnel that are in schools, in after schools, in the communities and at homes, calling personnel at home seems kind of weird, but people are in roles that may not necessarily get them to be reflective about the more social and emotional lives of the people that they're interacting with. Um, I think structure is is the key, as Iona said, but I would add to it that they feel very isolated from one another. And the learning that goes on in an online setting, because teachers are uncomfortable with their knowledge of it, as well as the students being uncomfortable with learning with it, even though they have other experiences with technology, has made for some uneasy interaction between teacher and, and students that has been filled with more work and less focus on the kind of uh, relationship building that needs to happen once again in that kind of an environment. So the, the social and emotional needs of this particular moment have been literally kind of short-circuited by people's lack of knowledge of technology, people's lack of knowledge of learning within technology, and people's lack of knowledge about what social and emotional learning means from their own reflective moment. Both parents and teachers need to think about their own social and emotional learning, and that's very hard to get people to do. I just want to echo Devin's words, and I think we're all in agreement. We have to start with ourselves. I think collectively we have to send that message. We've got to check in with ourselves, know what we're feeling, how we're feeling, practice self-care, figure out what works for us, and then be able you know, to cope and manage with those other broader relationships. I wanted to tap into this idea that uh, Devin is saying about uh, the busy work, right, that we are having as a result of this, because it, it's always struck me that the work of school and the work of social emotional learning sometimes is, is seen are seen as separate, right? So you have the period, the five minutes that you do a brain, brain break, or the period that you do a something 
and instead of making it at the center of what the students are doing. So what I mean by that is uh, when you ask a student to write about something, why don't they write about, for example, a diary of their life in isolation or something? So for example, my son's art teacher um, asked him to look for uh, objects in the house and make a color wheel, for example, a primary color wheel. That's something that involves social emotional learning is using his own environment. So it's always struck me that the teachers don't tap into that uh, resource right there that is read about this, write about this. Instead, it's always something separate. So how do you feel about this? How do you view this? As a former educational leader, I think it really starts from the top. If you have an emotionally intelligent administrator during this time, I think that's what they should be leading with is the check-ins, the awareness, Awareness, uh, getting their faculty to connect on some level with students, with parents. I think teachers themselves right now, many are overwhelmed by the amount of resources given to them, also by the lack of resources, right? We're really seeing um, so many equity issues highlighted through this pandemic. So people are really struggling on multiple levels. Um, so I'm going to come back to the leadership piece and, and I think it really has to start from them. You know, I, I keep talking to different principals and colleagues and it's very interesting to see the very mixed messaging that's going out there. Some are pushing academics, some are pushing more mindfulness and let's deescalate the stress and let's go that pathway. One reaction I had is, uh, based on, I think, what I was saying before, is that in moments of stress, and I think I'm going back to the original question by Lisa, what are the stressors? And I think in moments of stress, major moments of stress in social groups, we see two tendencies. Either people getting together and find support on each other, with each other and from each other, or people moving apart, moving further away. And, and you find people who are, tend to reflect and engage and try to understand what's happening to them and being very mindful of what's happening to others and realizing that they need to kind of slow down to understand and process and listen and feel. And, and people who don't do that, they become more anxious and they need to act faster or to they disconnect. So I think that links to the second point that um, uh, Clara and also Lisa made, which is, you know, busy, busy work and leadership that tries to be more empathic and trying to bring the teachers and the students together versus leadership that doesn't do that, that tries to cross the dots, all the dots, basically, and assign activities, um, which from where I am, and I hear many parents, not many, several, experiencing a lot of stress because they find it very difficult to do that work with the kids because it's too much work. And it's and if they have more than one child, then it becomes really a, a major challenge. And they find themselves either failing to impose structure and failing to help the kids. So it almost adds to the stress, if you want, because it is work that is somehow busy work that is disconnected from the emotional needs and what is happening right now and the deep anxiety and uncertainty we feel on an individual level, family level, social level. Uh, I can extend that a little bit to the issues we are facing as educators at Adelphi. We are all teaching classes online 
we have to adjust our expectations a bit. We cannot have the same number of assignments as we used to before. And we, don't, we cannot expect the students sometimes to hand in the assignments exactly by the point of midnight on a specific day, given how uncertain things are at home. And many of our students either have been affected by coronavirus or have members, family members who have been affected. A leadership that's more attuned to the times and to the needs of the group or the, the needs of the teachers and the parents and the needs of the kids, it's likely to, much, to be much, of, of much more help to the children and than a leadership that just, just applies busy work. I've heard this idea of busy work brought up a few times. I was wondering if you can expand on that a little bit and also touch on maybe in this time, while people are pivoting to remote teaching, what are the things that you're doing that others can do? I think I took the word busy work from Clara, so I can blame her. I can also give some concrete examples of busy work, because this is something that I have been struggling myself, both as an educator and as a parent at home. I feel that there are such incredible moments that are happening in our everyday life that we could write about, for example, that I could write about with my son. Uh, my son is six. And... And, and I appreciate his teacher so much, but at the same time, uh, the kinds of homework that he has are the same kinds that he, he had before, uh, which are, let's say, um, math worksheet or um, foundations, right? Um, the spelling and writing kind of worksheet and sometimes a writing prompt. But the, this, this writing prompt is rarely connected to something that we can work uh, together and write together and so I see very little change in the curriculum to to address and attune to to this moment that we are living in for example as an early childhood person I'm very saddened to hear that because the advice I'm giving my students and parents is to support parents to really I'm going to say it go rogue I mean for me play is a priority and it's become too um, underdeveloped. And right now we have this unique opportunity to really play. A number of us were texting those of us who have young children. And I think it was Professor Whitley who wrote to us, I found a new activity to do today with my four-year-old, you know, add dishwashing liquid, a few toys, and a hand mixer in the kitchen sink. And boy, the bubbles, you know, come in abundance and they, you know, fall over. And we laughed. I have a middle schooler and I'm trying to show my son how I play and what is playful to me. And we as a family, you know, we've gotten back to our board games and we're having fun and we go for a daily walk outside as a family. So we're trying to kind of come into one another's play times. And my son, you know, has taken upon himself. He's trying to get my husband and I in better shape. So he says, I'm going to train you and we'll do a workout. We, this week, had a wonderful service day where we baked cookies for his aunt who's on the front lines and is a nurse. So, you know, we're really trying to find for one another how we can prioritize play, have some unstructured time, but also still get the learning done. But I, as an educator and parent, definitely feel empowered to go a little rogue. So when I feel that his school is sending too many busy assignments, I just back off of it and say, you know, where, where's your passion today? You want to play an instrument? You want to go for a walk? What, what is it that you want to spend some time doing? And try to honor that. 
in my experience, school leaders who recognize that what early childhood has been doing should be carried on throughout the grades. And that is not just the play, play piece, but the holistic approach to learning that things emerge out of activity, that there is a way in which a math lesson should include art, that there's a way in which psychology benefits from hearing from other disciplines. So the curriculum becomes kind of narrowed and, and structured in a way that disallows for seeing the connections that can be made and inclusion of the self. So getting back to the SEL piece of this, there needs to be, and play, play certainly speaks to that as well, a recognition that one is learning about oneself as much as learning about the world at any given point. And leaders who recognize that realize that the self needs breathing room to be able to absorb, to construct, to understand. And I think that there's a, and I think that's a lesson to be learned by all of us who teach in higher education as well. Um, so to go to Aaron's question, I don't do courses anymore that are my own narrative ever. Uh, Lisa, Jonas, and Clara were all part of a class that brought in a guest speaker whose background is much broader than the discipline of psychology. And I've had guest speakers and readings that are for uh, advanced students in psychology that go well beyond psychology to look at how does this connect to our lives in the arts. In um, I'm teaching a course on creativity perception in the arts that is all about doing art in class. And my students every week are doing pointillism and graffiti. And, you know, these are psychology majors that are engaging in the playfulness of life that needs to be a part of our multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, holistic view of what learning is. So I am co-teaching everything. I co-teach with Lisa. I would co-teach with Jonas, Clara, and you, Aaron, in a heartbeat. It doesn't help to remain in a narrow silo to be able to see that the self is at the center of all of this. And there is a way in which we can collectively build uh, uh, student understanding by talking with one another, to be playful with one another, to bring knowledge together in ways that is enriching and engaging. And I think if we did that, that we would be in a much better place. And I think this is apart from the pandemic. I think it goes to the heart of why United States uh, education is in such jeopardy is because we've lost a sense of childhood. I would love to throw something out there. Um, you know, I've been talking and I work with teacher candidates and I'm, I'm trying to get them to understand what they're feeling now, but Devin and Jonas, what about, again, when we go back to school, I think it's going to be really important for us to support our teachers and all of our school professionals in getting them to understand how do they get back to that place, Devin, that you just spoke of, that, um, you know, place of curiosity, of imagination, of love of learning, of a sense of reassurance and, and calmness. I, I'm very concerned with teachers coming back, feeling the heaviness of what we've just gone through. So I think it's going to be important for leaders and for all of us in higher education to support our candidates to be able to transition, uh, you know, back into the, I guess, the face-to-face -face classroom learning. Many years ago, 
I was asked, when I was at another university, I was asked to visit psychologists who were doing their internships at different schools. And I went to a school in the Har in Harlem. And there was, a, at the time, this was 92, and it was um, a problem area. There were drugs. It was right after the first Kuwait war. The AIDS epidemic was still pretty much it was taking its toll. And I arrived there, and I found a school psychologist who, this is a public school, said to me, I don't do any kind of testing. I don't do any kind of any of the things. What I do is group therapy I, and cooking. And that's a different role, right? What do you mean group therapy? Well, group therapy in class. I go to class and pretty much every teacher has signed up for it. And she would spend half an hour in each class every day, different classes, talking to each class like what was an event that was worth discussing over the week that passed. And usually there was an event. Somebody had died, there was something in the news, some, there was a fight, there was an argument, an argument in the classroom, somebody being upset. And what she was doing, she was doing processing groups. And every, the whole school had signed up for it. And for lunchtime, she would bring the developmental disabled kids in developmental delays, and she would actually do the cookies that you did, Lisa. So she would take orders from all the teachers on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then they would do their inventory, and they would order the materials on Wednesday and get them. Thursday, they would cook and sell, and Friday, they would do the accounting. So they were doing math, reading, processing, executive skills, you name it. And then after school, every different day, it was a different activity. Quilts, weaving, quilt making for parents who had AIDS, weaving or painting for, for kids whose parents were in Kuwait or whatever. And it was astounding to me what she, was doing, what she did. So to take that idea to today, here, I think with the teachers go back to school, the first thing they need to do is to give some space to what happened. What happened to you? Where are you now? I'm so glad you're here. How did you make it? And it's easy to move ahead with the schoolwork, but there, there are some priorities here, you know, to celebrate the togetherness, if you want, and to also celebrate the resilience that people, families were able to go through this, hopefully intact, but I'm sure there would be losses because already in my immediate environment, I have a colleague who lost his mother at the nursing home and he couldn't visit her. And I imagine another one, you know, this might happen to another one because everybody's worried. Um, and I can also say one more incident here. Like at the, we had an executive meeting of the executive board in the postgraduate program. That was three weeks ago. And at the time I had found out that my son who lives alone in Manhattan um, was symptomatic. He had uh, COVID. And we had found out the previous night and we were trying to figure out what did, what did he what he needed from us and what we could do for him. So in the morning at nine o'clock, I didn't call him, but I went to that meeting. And as a colleague of mine asked me, um, so how's everybody? All of a sudden, his the, his the image of him came to my mind, and I, I felt teary, you know, because I had suppressed the emotion in the doing what I need to do, what I need to do. And my son, being all alone in his house space, in his apartment, came to me, and that he was going to be there for one week, two weeks, God knows what. And what I want to say with that, he's fine now, and he's out of his quarantine, and everything is fine. But what I'm trying to say is that because these things are very difficult, these events, and painful and frightening, we compartmentalize them. We 
them aside, we do busy work, to go back to that term, or we get busy with the daily things, and we do things, but there is a, there is a wound inside. There is something else that needs to be addressed and engaged, because it's real. And I felt very connected with my group and uh, since then, and, and I also became very aware of how unaware I was, of how much this, was, this has stayed with me and how deeply it had affected me. And I suspect this would be the situation with many kids who come back to school, whatever the age. Yes, again, I, I'm thinking of the lost opportunity right there that we're living in right now. Diego said that I think that he's cherishing the most at these times is the um, first, the ability to uh, talk more one-on-one -on -one with his teachers and also the check-ins uh in the beginning or at the end of class and he says if you sign up early you can talk with your friends and that struck me as something so wonderful but at the same time why only those five minutes right before how can we make that more integrated into what we are doing right structurally into this remote learning opportunity I've been amazed at how many students have reached out for one-on-one -on -one Zoom sessions and some who will say to me, I'm very overwhelmed and if you could make the class more asynchronous. So I'm trying to, as best I can, individualize the learning, but it's interesting to see the, the patterns of connection that how some people, you know, want the face-to-face -face and others will express the feelings through email and maybe that's where their comfort level is um my husband and i encouraged my son he was feeling uneasy about a particular content area in course and the teacher had offered these you know open zoom times and my son is also a middle schooler he's 13 so you know that's fraught with you know trying to figure out who he is on any given day and we really encouraged him to connect with his teacher and he literally connect i timed it for six and a half minutes and when he closed the computer he came over to me and he said mom i feel so much better it was so great to talk to you know mr gary he was asking me how i was how you and dad were what i was doing if i was getting outside and it was just that little bit of reassurance that he needed from his teacher on that given day. And it changed his whole outlook and his mindset for the rest of the afternoon. And I just think that's really powerful. And that how amazing is it that we as teachers can do that for our students, right? I think that's such a powerful example of what I wanted to say when Jonas was talking about his son. And I think that Clara, the struggle with remote learning in particular is, I would reframe the question of how do they create space so that the learner has the room to choose the way that they express what they need to express. What uh, Jonas's story, I felt that there was a space that was created that allowed him to be able to think about his son to allow for some, some pain to be expressed. And I, because of this individual differences that Lisa's talking about between email versus Zoom. You know, some of my students will not show themselves during a Zoom. You know, I was conflicted about it initially. I thought, well, they should be seen and I want to look in them in the eyes and I feel uh, it's important. And I'm working in a, in a nonprofit that insists on it through all of the trainings, which I, I don't agree with. People's individual needs need to have the space to be able to be expressed. And I think that's the challenge for remote learning for me is how do you individualize through a 
creation of a safe zone to uh, have people express what they need to express. How does that happen? And it goes back to something that Jonas shared at the beginning about the importance of structure and consistency in the home, because part of that structure and consistency allows for that freedom to be able to have some choice, to have some voice, to have the opportunity to go the direction that one needs to go. Because I think we know that ultimately that there is a a way that structuring allows for people's emotional needs and and social needs to to emerge. Devin, you brought up this issue of structure, and so may, I may not have been that clear, and I want to get, take this opportunity to clarify that. By structure, I don't mean a rigid structure where you have to do 20 problems in two chapters and write three essays. I don't mean that. Um, I don't mean a rigid organization, but I mean a, an attempt to restructure and come up with an, a day where things would be a little predictable and with clear expectations exactly because things nowadays have fallen apart a little bit. So we need that. So the structure is not for the sake of creating rigid, a rigid frame, but creating a frame that enables people to feel, you know, that there is contained within that. And to me, um, the structure also implies devoting time to the kids, not for them to do homework, but to play, to make cookies, to, to uh, think what else they can do, and time to reflect, to think about them, and to have a joint time. I think that's extremely reassuring for children, um, especially in these times, because they cannot rely as much on others, because so many things are taken away that we take them for granted. And the, the, the way of coming together, the way of sort of Surviving this with not too many side effects is by being more together and attentive to each other. And I, I just as I'm saying that, the, uh, there is a, a saying in Japanese, I cannot say it in Japanese, but basically they like the number of three, the Japanese, and I guess the four, five also. But the idea is that one stick, you can break it easily. Two sticks, you can break them relatively easily. Three, it gets much harder and four and five. So I think the idea of togetherness and finding time to be together and reflect and share and experience it's both very rewarding and enriching and also very reassuring and i think the kids need that we need that as parents and friends just building on that a little i mentioned in earlier episode that in a strange way we i'm feeling more connected with the world because the entire world is going through this thing and in a way it's a horrible thing to experience um, on a large scale, but at the same time, it's also a shared common experience. And I'm finding myself a lot closer or feeling a lot closer to my students, for example. I can't, <laughs> I, can't I don't know if they feel the same, but um, I started doing this one thing on VoiceThread where I would ask them, uh, how are they doing just as a check-in? And I've started to do it more regularly as well. On every uh, week, they have a slide that says, how is everything? Um, share anything on your mind, something funny, something mundane, vent, daydream. And they get a little tiny bit of extra credit for that, but that's not the point. And I also started doing these open Zoom meetings where I have these open hours where the, anyone can just uh, drop, any student can just drop in 
And so far, um, at the time of recording, I've only done one. And I had a conversation with a student who had a question, and then another student who just wanted to talk for forty minutes, and that was great. And you know, when I have office hours in person, almost never anyone drops by. And so, in a way, I feel like I am making myself more available to students, and students are also communicating more. You're absolutely right, Aaron. I find that I'm more connected with students. A because there is more need to connect. I feel I'm much more worried about them, concerned, and I'm glad to see them. I'm glad, I'm glad to have my online classes. Um, but I think also things have slowed down a little bit. You see, when I am in when I'm in a regular week, I go from appointment to appointment. I drive here, I drive there. Now somehow um, conferences have been cancelled. <laughs> I had three conferences this month; all have been cancelled out. Plans for a summer May conference has been cancelled. Everything has slowed down, and so. But at the same time, technology allows this accessibility because I can reach all the students, and they can reach me, and so somehow I find myself more available. Um, it's interesting to me that two things have happened. You know, when I was teaching my seminars on Monday and I have two classes, invariably there would be one person who would be absent. I've now taught three classes. There's never been a single person who has been absent, and everybody's on time there. Of course, there's no traffic and there is no driving, etc., and parking. But everybody shows up on time, and everybody is attentive. Um, and it speaks of a need that the students have to feel part of something and also be part of the group. And that's very encouraging for me, and very hopeful and very uplifting. So in these moments where we are all a little hurt and all a little bit affected and saddened, you know, we have each other to rely on. And I think a, a program that is attentive to each to each member of the program and to the students, it's meeting its mission and beyond, so to speak. I had two responses um, to what we're all talking about now. First of all, Aaron, I fully intend to use this notion of keeping a Zoom time on for students to be able to. I think that's a great idea. I love that idea, and I, it, in some ways, it uh, opens up possibilities of dialogue, and and I'm all for that. Um, what Jonas was just talking about, I've had that experience, and I've also had the experience of some people being more unavailable, being more withdrawn. I've found my undergraduates in particular really. Um, of two camps. One is I'm there, I'm present, I'm engaged, I'm involved. And the other is I'm overwhelmed. I can't cope. I'm not able to, to, to get there. I'm not. And I've had individual contact with them. And it in some ways mirrors what I'm concerned about around remote learning and brings the issue of equity into this conversation. And that is um, it seems it seems irrelevant, but I just want to bring this up. Not many of the reports about people who have passed acknowledge that this is a phenomenon of color. It's a phenomenon of uh, social and economic inequities. It is a, 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 um, it's a travesty around resources and the lack of the resources. And it, the same is true in terms of remote learning. I mean, I I was witness to the cities closing down and principals panicked about not being able to get technology to the kids. They wanted to borrow the nonprofit uh, world's technology to get it to the kids. 
so I guess part of what my response to this is, is that it allows us to feel connected to our students, but it also, in my mind, uh, allows us to begin to see differences in people's lives and illuminates, for me at least, how the lack of resources, the lack of being able to connect uh, or having the luxury to connect is something that we need to pay attention to. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about news going out that doesn't really repeat over and over again that this is a pandemic that is uh, seriously affecting certain populations much more than others, whether it be age or- Devin, I had a, a very, very profound moment last Friday morning. I was out walking very early. I live close to one of my local elementary schools in my area. And I noticed somewhat of a car parade. And I saw teachers with, you know, sweatshirts and it was raining and they had hats on with the school emblems and colors. And I thought, oh, let me come closer. What's going on here? And as I got closer, uh, I'm already now becoming emotional. Um, they were handing out food to families for the weekend. And I just kind of stopped for a minute. And that really brings us back to that socio-emotional learning piece that I thought, Clara, to your first point today, no academic work, you know, none of that was on the priority. It was teachers putting together just beautiful packages with such care, this ethic of care, running out to people's cars and saying, have a great weekend, we miss you, you know, we love you, we're, we're going to be back together soon, say hi to, you know, so-and-so and naming children. But seeing, again, just how empowered these teachers were to be able to provide this service, right? And it's a basic need that like, that's what was needed. And I live in a community that is very racially and ethnically diverse and we're, we're struggling. I'm in a hotbed here on Long Island, I'm in Glen Cove. And, you know, we have many uh, disenfranchised communities who are really struggling with COVID. But I thought to myself, I came back home and I shared it with my son and my husband. And I said, okay, we need to think about what we're grateful for, but also, you know, how can we help? This is our community. What, what can we do to support one another? But that, that really gets to your point, Deb, and it's, you know, are, are we meeting our students' basic needs? And if we continue to the compartmentalized response that Jan uh, is talking about, right, that we keep doing what we are doing and meetings after meetings and uh, curriculum, not changing the curriculum, I think that we are missing also an opportunity, Liz, to connect, you know, to take this as a learning reflective opportunity because there are, there's so much that we can learn from this. And it can be an educational opportunity to learn and transform that into action. Yeah, David, you're absolutely right. And as you started talking, I said, oh my God, you know, how easy it is to talk and to feel eloquent, or I think I felt somewhat eloquent, and, and being unaware also of a whole other aspect. You know, the disparities, the inequalities, because I'm talking about our students, which are graduate students, which are 20 students per cohort, basically. It's much more manageable. We know them personal on a personal basis. We know each other very well. Um, it's a different relationship. You know, I think teaching an undergraduate course where they're younger and they're also much more diverse in terms of education, training, aspirations, identities, etc. It's, it's a much more 
it's it's harder it's not the same group anymore it doesn't have the same coherence and of course of course the the different socioeconomic needs and realities here and what it affords um i had yesterday a client of mine mentioning that you know 40 percent of the affected covid uh, people in new york city are basically latinos and then she asked me do you think it's a dna do you think they do some research and find out if there's a dna since you know um, vulnerability that makes them likely to contact and i said not likely look who are working who's everybody who takes the subway who needs to deliver all the stuff that's being delivered home to home and all the clerks and and, and that aspect was totally out of her mind she's a very nice person by the way but it's chilling and surprising to me how we can exist on two levels we can be very nice and very decent and at the same time very unaware and i think I think that's exactly to my point of great pain, frankly, because I have to constantly be reminded about this. I, you know, when the when New York City opened the enrichment centers that was supposed to be for the first responders, um, this was intended to be a replacement in some ways for childcare for those that were in on the front lines of of dealing with this. Um, it was the city's response to not having schooling. It was the city's response to not having services. Um, and I was involved in trying to staff those centers. And uh, I was horrified by a response to that of people concerned that volunteering meant that they were going to be at risk of getting sick of the legalities involved in that and the organizations that were helping to contribute to that. Uh, and my point I want to make about this is, is that the impulse to be concerned about our brothers and sisters, whether they be of different color or not, shines through these enrichment centers, whereas initially they became kind of ghettoized experiences that were of the worst kind. There was suddenly a spark of people realizing that they had a sense of connection and commitment to those who were of diverse backgrounds. So part of what social and emotional learning, to go back to something that Lisa talked about, is community service, being able to give to others, being able to go out uh, uh, even in a small way through remote learning, perhaps, of being able to develop a sense of concern for others that is is at the heart of who we are as human beings. And it's part of the, the challenge of remote learning, it seems to me, to be able to know that you're not living in this box. I think that's incredibly powerful, Devin. Also, even for young children who we know are notoriously egocentric, um, but, but that's helped with me quite a bit, even in my own house, you know, really talking about perspective and, and all of us having a sense of perspective during this time and thinking about where, where we fit. And, you know, that again, we will, we lived lives before this, we will live lives after this and we will persevere, but talking about putting yourself in someone else's shoes and, you know, what do you think it's like for your friend or this friend or, you know, we're constantly asking my son, you know, he has friends whose parents are first responders and doctors and, you know, maybe are not home that much right now. So, you know, how are you connecting to them? And, 
you know, what do you think their day looks like to Jonas's point? You know, he has friends who have absolutely no structure because no one's home, understandably. So how can we then try to support that family? Um, you know, can we zoom together during math time or a different time and, you know, just try to give them a little bit of, of a structure or a ritual to kind of look for every day in that routine? We know kids typically benefit from, from routines. <laughs> As we, we go through this, there's such an incredible opportunity again to do what you were saying, Lisa. Let's get together through Zoom and really change. Because when we go back, we could look back and say, look, we really reflected on this and look at what we did. We really managed to really change and transform things. And so I'm hoping that um, we can get together to, to, to talk more about this and how we can make this time an opportunity for a really real educational opportunity for all of us. Aaron, you're going to say something. The biggest thing that I'm taking away from this uh, conversation, again, is creating the space to be reflective. Um, you know, the, the remote learning that teachers do, if nothing else, should be a message of slowing down. And this isn't about the teachers. This is about the mandates that they face, the expectations that they face. But the space that needs to be created could be things as simple as, here's a problem, let's talk about it. And now let's talk about what it was like for you to do the problem. I mean, there's a, there's a space that gets created by reflective activity that I think would allow for a, a richer opportunity for learning and social emotional learning that um, I think there's a tendency to view remote learning as disallowing. And I think that if we create that space, that's why I liked what you had suggested, Aaron, it creates a space for uh, people to step forward if they are looking to do that in a different way. I like that a lot. I know we talked a lot about students, but I know some faculty are also doing the same thing um, with kind of Zoom happy hours where they have a link that people can just show up and hang out for a while. And um, it sounds like a good idea. I'm going to start doing that and see if, if, if anyone would show up. I, I like that. That's, I think that's great. Jonas, does, does your program or Derner do anything that you would recommend in terms of the support of your students or faculty? And we have town hall meetings. And so we do them for the whole school, for the, each program, and then each cohort from each program. So um, that's our hangout, if you want. Um, we don't have an open where we... I mean, the town hall meetings pretty much are open to everybody and people can join in. Um, but again, it's a smaller program. It's not undergraduate that it is. It's a, a, people know each other. Um, today we'll have this, right after this, I have a town hall meeting coming up and that will be the second one we'll be having. So I'm curious to see how many people would show up. Um, and of course, what are the issues they will be bringing? Because one of the, what, as you all have realized, our perspectives and our understanding of what's needed is changing from week to week to week, both because different realities emerge, but also because we experience what's happening differently and we find ourselves more affected in different ways. So when 10 days ago, we offered the, third, the first town hall meeting and we didn't offer the second one within a week because we wanted to put together some procedures to help students with internship projects, um, a lot of the questions were into how to. 
how do I accumulate the hours, how do I finish, how do I apply for uh, certification, etc. I'm interested to see what it would be today because we have given a clear plan as to get a, a clear list of how to's out there and the procedures and how to go, etc. So I wonder, you know, and I would be interested a week from now what will be the topic of the conversation, what themes would emerge. What I'll be doing for my part will keep track of the themes that emerge from week to week as a testimony, if you want, as to how we as a program dealt with it, but also what keeps emerging and makes us aware of blind spots of things we have not addressed and what we need to put our minds on. Um, I just want to come back to something that um, Lisa asked, or maybe Clara, I don't remember which one, but how would that affect us? What would be uh, the outcome of this? And I think it would be transformative. You know, things would be different. I don't know exactly how, but it's the first time that all of us have been affected. It's not like September 11. September 11 were more visual. We could see it, and but we, many of us did not experience it at home, in their own homes. They were not sequestered unless they had a family member who was immediately affected. Um, this has affected all of us, and it puts into question education, mental health, you know, health policies, economics, you name it. So, um, it's, it, it would be something to, that would be figuring it out over the course of several months, if not more than, more than a year. But I agree fully that, um, the teachers don't need criticism right now, but I also feel they don't need criticism, not because the work that they do is difficult and they have to improvise with something new that they haven't done before, but also because they, many of them, they themselves are dealing with tremendous uncertainty and also crisis at home that we are not aware of. And they have to make these lesson plans and they have to carry on the lessons while somebody is isolating in the room upstairs or their parent is in a nursing home, etc. And I feel like, yes, we need to be forgiving and also kind of aware of our limitations and, um, and of how important it is to be aware of, you know, how fragile and how limited others can feel in this situation. And just to end on a maybe a positive note, I was wondering, what are you doing for yourself in terms of self-care and taking care of yourself? Um, and I, I guess I'll go first. I, uh, I started doing this not just uh, recently, but um, I found it very helpful if I'm able to disconnect at night and um, not uh, not try to read any emails and make any immediate responses. With apologies to my students who like to email me at, at 11, um, but I feel like that has been really important for me to maintain some kind of control and boundaries. Um, what about you? Uh, anyone? I am really doing daily gratitudes, and sometimes it's something as small as sharing a nice big breakfast with my husband and son, <laughs> because to Jonas's point, I'm not a slow person and I don't miss commuting. <laughs> I don't miss working two jobs. <laughs> so I'm really learning about myself and um, how happy I am slowing down. <laughs> I live in Philadelphia. So there's been a, um, a, a boundary that's been created 
in my mind between New York and Philadelphia with my kids in New York. You know, my work is in New York. My life in many respects has been in New York, but I'm in this kind of bubble. It doesn't mean that Philadelphia hasn't started to see an uptick of cases, but it felt different somehow. It a little warmer climate. I mean, I know this sounds silly, but so the self-care up until three days ago for me was to go along the Schuylkill River, practicing social distancing for sure. But having, I've even sent some photos to Clara and Lisa, uh, spring coming forward and uh, going to walks uh, and running which uh, to be transparent about this, having lost 45 pounds in the last three years, I had been avid about going to the gym. When the gyms closed down, I freaked out. So I thought that the self-care aspect would be to go running. Well, I fell flat. And not only did I fall flat, I re-injured myself by cracking a rib in the same way I did in Madagascar three years ago. So now I'm trying to figure out how to self-care in a different way. Um, writing has always been a refuge for me. I'm not sure if it will be that same refuge, but that's part of what I'm going to try. I'm going to try to continue uh, some kind of physical activity because I think it's huge for me. And um, yeah, that's where I that's am. That's the uplifting the story that you wanted, Aaron? No, only <laughs> Listen, you want uplifting? The fact that I can even talk to people about this stuff online, that's uplifting. It's okay if, if I don't pay attention to it too much. And more importantly, I knew it was time to step back because I was doing this every day since we've been quarantined. It just felt like I needed to, to do something physical like that. Um, and I'm doing okay, but it's been uh, sobering and humbling. Maybe that's not a bad thing. I usually do yoga and I wake up very early to do so and I love it. But I have to be honest with all of you and that's not a positive ending. With two little ones at home, it's really hard to find a time for, for myself. And that's the stressful part of it. It's, the day is very noisy and uh, interruptions, constant interruptions. And I love my kids, but it's very stressful. When they're always going back and forth, back and forth. So, uh, and uh, it's, it's stressful. It's stressful to be a, pa a working parent right now. Part of what you do is what I do. Let me identify it in myself. And that is, is that you work a lot, too hard. Can you step back and the self-care be knowing that you've got small kids, doing a little less? You are the most actively, wonderfully engaged colleague and friend I know. But you, you are so working too hard. I just have to say that. And it's uplifting because I care about you and I am constantly thinking about she needs to slow down. As a message, that's my message to you. Slow down, Clara. Wow. Well, Clara, I'm 61 and my kids are 30 and 25. I would really love to have a baby in here rather than a grandchild. I want to go back and be 35, not just for the youth of it, but also for the promise and the wonder and everything that these kids brought. And Clara, my message is laugh with them. They are so precious at that age. I chased my son around the kitchen this morning and he's five foot 10 with a wooden spoon. And I said, <laughs> what we're going to learn during coronavirus. I said, mommy always wanted to learn how to beat you with a wooden spoon. And we laughed so hard, my son and I. 
<laughs> it was right. just a fun, playful moment. And I said, he needs to see me laugh and be silly. And you need to, you need to just delight in those two beautiful babies. You do. That will be your self-care is just laughing and, and just being delightful with them. You're right. You're so right. You're so right. And do it. Yeah. Do it. Go rogue. Go. <laughs> I'll go rogue. After and today, I'll go rogue. Yes. Go rogue with work. Week. <laughs> well, thank you for ending on that positive note. I was worried about that for a second. But it's uh, glad to hear about your views on social emotional learning. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Erin. For talking to us. And have a wonderful day. Thank you, Jonas and Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Wow.